My name's Tim Bryant. I'm an elder here at Highland, and we want to welcome you this morning. This is our uh, first in the series called uh, Breaking Through, and it's designed around Advent, and um, it, it really is about what the, the story reveals in our darkness. And so that is where we are uh, heading this morning. In the next weeks, we're going to look at the hope that he brings through the story and the joy he expresses in anticipation of the events, the love he showed by the gift of his son, and the light he brings to our darkness. But this morning and this Sunday, we're going to talk about God's faithfulness. Advent means coming in Latin. And during the Advent season, we celebrate the coming of Jesus into the world. And this truly is a blessed story. It has changed the history of the world. And in fact, kids, you all know what this is, right? What is this? And what is it? The greatest book in the whole wide world. I hear young kids and older people who've been under Sue's ministry for years saying the same thing. This book has changed the world. It's made up of 66 books. There are 39 in the Old Testament. There are 27 in the New. And the stats are a little hard to nail down because uh, so many Bibles are given away. But it is known to be the best-selling book in the world. And there are roughly 5 billion copies out there somewhere. There are approximately 100 million Bibles printed and sold or given away every year. So you may have grown up thinking the Old Testament was just kind of old, you know, and kind of dry and kind of stories about who begat whom and who begot what. But um, this morning, we're going to show you a bit about how the Old Testament ties into the New Testament as God promises what he's going to do to fix this mess that Adam and Eve got us into. And as he fulfills those promises in his word in the New Testament. This morning we're going to look at how after the fall of man, God promised a Messiah, one who would save his people and bring us out of darkness. And we'll look at his promises in the Old Testament and their fulfillment in the New. And after that, we're going back to the garden to look at two questions that I believe still ring down through the ages in the heart of every man. So let's consider the faithfulness of God as he promised our Savior this morning. Now, I want to tell you that this sermon has been preached pretty well before. Um, in Luke 24, after the resurrection, Jesus was walking on the road to Emmaus with two disciples. And you remember that they were telling him all that had happened to this guy, Jesus, and that how they, were, they almost seemed disappointed because they thought that he would be the Messiah and they talked about the sufferings and all that he had gone through and that he had, they had found an empty tomb just that morning. And here's what Jesus says to them in Luke 24, 25. You foolish people, you find it so hard to believe that all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. 
Now that's the sermon I'd like to hear, and that's the sermon I'd love to give you. Um, but nobody wrote that one down. So you're stuck with me this morning. But um, as we look at God's promises in the Old Testament and his faithfulness to fulfill those promises, um, I'd like to invite my bride to the stage to help me with this this morning. This beautiful girl batted her eyes at me in Spanish class when she was a sophomore in high school. And... um, And I've been saying I do ever since. No, no, it's all right. It's all right. (laughs) I've been saying yes, dear, ever since. Whatever. Again, so Old Testament promise, New Testament fulfillment. Here we go. 700 years before the birth of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah wrote these words in Isaiah 9, 1 through 2. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. The land of Zebulun and Naphtali will be humbled. But there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. For those who lived in the land of darkness, a light will shine. And God showed his faithfulness with this New Testament fulfillment. Come over here. Stand on the carpet. Okay. Okay. Matthew 4, 12 through 14. When Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he left Judea and returned to Galilee. He went first to Nazareth, then left there and moved to Capernaum, beside the Sea of Galilee, in the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. This fulfilled what God said through the prophet Isaiah. In the land of Zebulun and of Naphtali, beside the sea, beyond the Jordan River, in Galilee where so many Gentiles live, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. And for those who lived in the land where death cast its shadow, a light has shined. The Old Testament promise, the Messiah would be a descendant of Abraham. In Genesis, God made a covenant with Abraham Genesis 12, 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, leave your native country, your relatives and your father's family, and go to the land I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. And all the families on the earth will be blessed through you. And God showed his faithfulness in this New Testament fulfillment. Acts 3, 22 through 25. Friends, I realize what you and your leaders did to Jesus was done in ignorance. But God was fulfilling what all the prophets had foretold about the Messiah, that he must suffer these things. Now repent of your sins and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped away. Then times of refreshment will come from the presence of the Lord, and he will again send you Jesus, your appointed Messiah, where he must remain in heaven until the time for the final restoration of all things, as God promised long ago through his holy prophets. Moses said, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. Listen carefully to everything he tells you. Then Moses said, Anyone who will not listen to that prophet will be completely cut off from God's people. Starting with Samuel, every prophet spoke about what is happening today. 
You are the children of those prophets, and you are included in the covenant God promised to your ancestors. For God said to Abraham, through your descendants, all the families on earth will be blessed. And the Old Testament promise, the Messiah will be a descendant of David. 2 Samuel 7, 12 through 16. Nathan the prophet spoke to the king. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring, and I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house, a temple for my name, and I will secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. And God showed his faithfulness with this New Testament fulfillment. Luke 1, 26-33. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of King David. Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. And the Old Testament promised the Messiah will be God's son. Psalm 2, 6 through 8. For the Lord declares, I have placed my chosen king on the throne in Jerusalem and on my holy mountain. The king proclaims the Lord's decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Only ask and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the whole earth as your possession. And God showed his faithfulness with this New Testament fulfillment. Luke 3, 21 through 22. One day when the crowds were being baptized, Jesus himself was baptized. As he was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit in bodily form descended on him like a dove. And a voice from heaven said, You are my dearly loved son and you bring me great joy. Skip the next one. And there are so many more. The Messiah would be resurrected, Psalm 16, 8 through 11. The Messiah would be forsaken and pierced, Psalm 22, 1 through 31. The Messiah would be greater than David, Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Messiah would be rejected as the cornerstone, Psalm 118, 22 through 24. And the Old Testament promise, the Messiah will be born of a virgin, Isaiah 7, 13 through 14. Then Isaiah said, listen well, you royal family of David. Isn't it enough to exhaust human patience? Must you exhaust the patience of my God as well? All right then, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And the New Testament fulfillment, Matthew 1, 18 through 23. This is how Jesus the Messiah was born. His mother Mary was engaged to be married to Joseph. But before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, 
She became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. Joseph, to whom she was engaged, was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her publicly, so he decided to break the engagement quietly. As he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit, and she will have a son, and you are to name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All of this occurred to fulfill the Lord's message through his prophet. Look, the virgin will conceive a child. She will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. And the Messiah would be called a Nazarene, Isaiah 53. The Messiah would perform signs of healing, Isaiah 35. The Messiah would be resurrected, Psalm 16. The Messiah would be forsaken and pierced, Psalm 22. The Messiah would be a light for the nations and the world, Isaiah 42, 1 through 6. The Messiah would bring a new covenant, Jeremiah 31. And it goes on and on and on. Thank you, Don. That's my girl. And so this morning we celebrate God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises of a Messiah, a Savior, Christ the King, who came not only to the Jews but also to the Gentiles. He came that day not as a mighty warrior as they expected him to rule, but as a helpless child. He confounded the wise and the religious and announced his arrival to lowly shepherds. His promise throughout his word fulfilled down to the smallest detail. Now we know uh, we don't have a lot uh, of information uh, on Jesus before he was 12. uh, But we know that he probably had a fairly normal childhood. And although... I'm, I'm sure that Joseph and Mary must have been tempted in some way to kind of, um, you know, show that. So, do we have that, uh, that bumper sticker? Yes. I think Jason showed this one before. So, our son's an honor student. Our son's a medical, in medical school, and our son's the son of God. So, of course, they must have. We can assume that he participated in normal life of a young man in Nazareth. And that would be next. Youth group fundraisers in biblical times. Come join the camel wash. But what he did was he came to fix what was broken in the garden. So many thousands of years before. And restore our relationship to the Father. He gave his life through the death on the cross and atonement for our sins. And his resurrection brings us eternal life. So what I want to do this morning is go backwards now to where it all started. The reason why we need an Advent. The reason why we celebrate the birth of Jesus and his life and death and resurrection. Back to Genesis where there are two questions that echo in the hearts of men down through the ages. Two questions that set the stage 
for a need for a savior. All week I could not get these questions and their impact on us off my mind and heart. The first was asked by the serpent in the garden. It is the question that led to deception and sin and the fall of man. And it reveals our heart, I believe, today. What was that question? Did God really say? Did God really say? It comes with an attitude of, does he really know what he's talking about? It, it causes us to question what we know. It comes straight from the enemy and it leaves us unsure and in doubt. Genesis 3. The serpent was the shrewdest of all the wild animals and the Lord God, that the Lord God had made. And one day he asked the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the fruit of any of these trees in the garden? Of course we may eat of the fruit of these trees in the garden, the woman replied. It's only the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden that we're not allowed to eat. God said you must not eat or even touch it. If you do, you will die. You won't die, the serpent replied to the woman. God knows what that your eyes will be opened as soon as you eat it, and you will live and be like God, knowing good and evil. The woman was convinced, and she saw that the tree was beautiful and its fruit looked delicious. She wanted the wisdom it would give her, she, so she took some of the fruit and ate it, and then she gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it too. At that moment, their eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt ashamed of their nakedness. If my youngest son was here today, he could tell you that this is the moment that he always bashed in homeschooling. He always was angry at Adam and Eve and how they screwed everything up, and we have to work, and we have to study, and we have to do all these things instead of hanging around in a garden naked and unashamed, and relax. They blew it. Did God really say? But doesn't that kind of also reveal our hearts? In fact, we just really want to do what we think is best most of the time and have God bless that. Do you, do you hear with that? I want to do what I want to do. And then I want God to bless it. And I might even argue with him if he doesn't. It's how we make space for sin in our lives. It's how we justify our actions and say things like, well, God will forgive me. It's how we make choices and gloss over the truth, saying stupid things like, he made me this way, so it must be his fault, or it must be okay. And we keep and we feed our little sins and make excuses all along the way. I don't know if you saw the post, but uh, Doreen was quoted recently on Facebook as saying that uh, sin is like dart on uh, Stranger Things too. Uh, it's really cute at first, but before you know it, he's eating your cat. 
And um, that's kind of like sin in our lives. And so, and, and a lot of us kind of keep some sins going and we, we feed them and we hide them, we protect them. And we make excuse after excuse after excuse to cover our disobedience. Now, this is nothing new. Let's look at Adam, uh, Genesis 3.11. God asked Adam, have you eaten from the tree whose fruit I commanded you not to eat? Pretty straight up question, right? Yes or no? Adam's answer in verse 12, it was the woman you gave me who gave me the fruit and I ate it. Eve, Genesis 3.13, then the Lord asked the woman, what have you done? The serpent deceived me. And that's why I ate it. Did God really say? And it wasn't just in the garden. We've been doing, uh, doing this kind of stuff. We've been sinning. We've been disobeying and making excuses for a very long time. And the Lord gave us a lot of, uh, a lot of examples in, his, in the Bible because he used broken men just like us. I suppose I could ask each of you to stand up and tell one of your stories, but I think maybe we'll just look at the word instead. Let's talk about Aaron. Aaron was Moses' brother. Um, he was uh, later on the chief of all the high priests uh, in, uh, in the Levitical line. But watch what happens to him in Exodus. Moses is confronting the people about the golden calf. So Moses has gone up on the mountain He's got the Ten Commandments. I don't know which version of the Ten Commandments you in picture. I'm old enough that Charlton Heston is my man. And he's carrying those, uh, those tablets. He goes down because he hears a party going on. And what he finds are the people worshiping the golden calf. But Aaron comes clean on this. Watch what he does. Verse 21, finally, Moses turned to Aaron and demanded... What did these people do to you to make you bring such a terrible sin upon them? And Aaron said, don't get so upset, my Lord. You yourself know how evil these people are. They said to me, make us gods that will lead us. We don't know what happened to this fellow Moses who brought us up here from the land of Egypt. So I told them, whoever has gold or jewelry, take it off and bring it to me. And I just simply threw it into the fire and out jumped this calf. What? Are you kidding me? But we cover our sin and we shift the blame. We cover our sin and we shift the blame. Let's look at Saul. Saul's a great example of this kind of stuff. When Saul was at Gilgal with his men, afraid of the Philistines and waiting for Samuel the prophet... He gets this great idea. I'll make myself a priest and bring the sacrifice. Seems reasonable, right? Seems religious enough. So Samuel shows up and the excuses start to flow. 1 Samuel 13. But Samuel said, what is this you have done? And Saul replied, well, um, I saw my men scattering from me and and you, you didn't arrive, blame shift, uh, when you said you would. So the Philistines were at Michmash, ready for battle. So I said, 
the Philistines are ready to march against us at Gilgal, and I haven't even asked for the Lord's help. So I felt compelled to offer a burnt offering myself before you came. One translation actually says, so I forced myself and offered a burnt offering. He had no right to do that. He was not a priest. There was no reason for him to do and to step into Samuel's spot. Did God really say? You bet he did. And this one situation was the difference in Saul's defeat and the establishment of his kingdom forever. And later in chapter 15, we'll bash on Saul one more time. Saul, again, God was ready to deal with the Amalekites and told Saul to go to battle. So Samuel had told Saul to go to battle and completely destroy them. Now, I'm not going to go into details about what it, he actually said, but because of the kids maybe, but, but suffice it to say, it was all the way down to the hamsters, frogs, and lizards. Completely destroy them. So here's what Saul and his gang do in chapter 15, verse 7. Then Saul slaughtered the Amalekites from Havilah all the way to Shur, east of Egypt. And he captured Agag, the Amalekite king, but he completely destroyed everyone else. Saul and his men spared Agag's life and kept the best, wait, what? Kept the best of the sheep and goats, the cattle, well, and the fat calves, of course, and the lambs. Everything, in fact, that appealed to them. They destroyed only what was worthless and of poor quality. What's wrong with those verses? Did, did Samuel say, go and destroy the Amalekites and bring me back Agag the king? No. Did, uh, did Samuel say, go and destroy the Amalekites, but bring back all the good stuff? No. You see, sometimes we just want to do what we think is right and ask God to bless it. Did God say anything about everything that appeals to you? Hmm, I like that shiny thing. Let me have that one. Ooh, did you see the knife on that guy? I'm taking that. And this little sheep is so cute. And those puppies. So God tells Samuel the prophet that he regrets even ever making Saul king. How would you like to go down in history in the book with that, those words written about you? So in chapter 15, 12 through 15 now in 1 Samuel. Early the next morning, this is how Saul sets it all up. Early the next morning, Samuel went to find Saul. Someone told him, Saul went to the town of Carmel to set up a monument to himself. <laughs> then he went on to Gilgal. When Samuel finally, finally found him, probably texting about his victory, Saul greeted him cheerfully. May the Lord bless you, he said. I have carried out the Lord's command. Then what is the bleeding of the sheep and goats and the lowing of the cattle, I hear, said Samuel. 
It's true that the army spared the best of the sheep and, and the goats and the cattle, Saul admitted, but, but they were going to sacrifice them to the Lord your God. And we, restore, we destroyed everything else. Notice what he does. He shifts it. It's not him anymore. It's the army who did this. So he wasn't really, you know, in complete control. And we were, they were going to sacrifice it to the Lord. Samuel goes on in verse 22, and he replies, What is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. All we really want to do is what we think is best. All we really want to listen to is our voice. All we really want is what's best for us. Brian, will you uh, hit that spot? I think we're ready. Let me tell you, that last line of hers has gone to straight to my heart for so many years. That's really all we are about. All I really want is what I've got coming to me. All I want is my fair share. All I want is the best sheep and that cool dagger and all those other cool things that we picked up. We did what God said. We just didn't do all of it because it was really cool. I mean, come on. All I really want is what I've got coming to me. <laughs> There's also a lot of wisdom and a lot behind those words because you know what? You might just get what you've got coming to you. To obey is better than sacrifice. So we're really no different. We really just want to do what we think's best or right. And have God bless that. And this question set up the need for a Savior. That promise uh, of a Messiah. Without did God really say. And without the doubt and without the change. Without the disobedience. we wouldn't be standing here in this place. We'd be in the garden. But the promised Messiah would bring, uh, would come and bring light into the world that was darkened by that very question. Did God really say? And it, it darkens our lives still all the time. The second question reveals the heart of God. Let's look at Genesis 3, verse 8. When the cool of the evening breezes were blowing, 
the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man and said, Adam, where are you? Now, just in case you're wondering, I'm pretty sure God knew exactly where Adam was. He knew how he was dressed. He knew which bush he was behind. He knew the whole deal. But he said, Adam, where are you? God made us in his image, Genesis 1.27. Male and female, he made us. And he gave us one garden and one job. Name the animals, take dominion over the, them, and tend the garden. And there weren't even any weeds in this garden. That came with the curse. Did God know where Adam was? You bet he did. But he called Adam because he wanted Adam to face him and confess his sin. He wants us to come forward and face our sin. Not give an excuse. Not say that woman. Not say those kids. Not say that this day. Not say all the excuses that we have. He wants us to come forward and face him. It encompasses God's desire for us. Where are you? His desire for fellowship with us. Our sin causes us to want to hide from God, blame others, and disappear. Question one comes with disobedience and excuses. Question two comes from the heart of God who wants to revive and restore and renew and resurrect our dead hearts. Adam, where are you? George, where are you? Bo, where are you? Mary, where are you? John, I know. Ephesians 5, verse 6 says, Don't be fooled by those who try to make excuses for their sins. For the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in these things like these people do. For once you were full of darkness, but now you have light from the Lord. So live as people of the light. For this light within you produces only what is good and right and true. So where is your heart this Christmas, this morning? What are you hiding from God? What are you making excuses for? If you're like me, you already know the answer. 
You don't have to think very hard. Are there sins that you're making excuses for? And are you hoping that God's just going to look the other way? Or maybe he just doesn't see? Or maybe you have a long list of wants. But you should know that what he wants is your heart. And that alone. The heart of Adam still beats in your chest today. And God is still saying, Adam, where are you? Tim, where are you? As we close this morning, we're going to meet at the communion table. There'll be people around the corners of the room as we normally do for communion. And as you go this morning, if you want to stop by the altar here, the steps, the whatever, and just do some business with God first, you're certainly welcome to do that. He really wants your heart. And as you take communion this morning, let's prepare ourselves in that place so that we can walk into this Advent season, this Christmas season, not expecting to get whatever we want, but expecting to live through that light that shines in our own hearts and be a light to this very darkened world. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your call. And we hear you down through the ages calling our names. You come with mercy. You come with love. You come with the gift of salvation and eternal life through the gift of your son, Jesus. And Lord, we take that seriously today. And as we take this communion to remember your death and resurrection. We look forward to the moment when we celebrate it at the biggest table we've ever seen, at the biggest party there's ever been, at the wedding feast of your bride and the groom Jesus. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.